Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Oh, oh by the way, put your headphones on. See what you hear. Wait, see what you hear. <coughs> there you go. See how loud that was. Mm-hmm. Sorry, <laughs> he won't do. That. He won't do that again. Um, just yeah. want to make sure everyone's awake. Hello, everybody. Again, this is another episode of Rotations. I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And today we have a great guest, part of uh, our Allied Health series. And I'll let Nisarg take over and, and get this all sorted out. But as soon as he does, I'm going to ask a very impertinent question. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Rotations, everyone. Um, we're here with Karen Bailey, a registered and licensed dietitian and a certified diabetes educator. Um, and we're excited to talk a little bit about what she does and, and how you know, future physicians and current physicians can use that knowledge um, in their daily practice. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. And happy to be here. Of course. <laughs> so what's the what's the question? Well, the question is, is and, and Karen, don't take offense at this, because I, I, I had a little faux pas with Sarah Atkins about pharma, pharmacology. And I made a, I may said that pharma, pharmacists are either great or they blank. They stink, basically. <laughs> But dietitians. I remember hearing that actually. I watched the podcast. <laughs> no, and I felt badly afterwards, but I didn't take it back because it's just me. But um, the fact, and she knew what I was talking about. But but my question for the dietitian is: is are all, do diet do do all dietitians just have a general aversion to ice cream and fun food, or do they, or do some of them sneak like like on their off time? Do they actually sneak into their pantries in the back corner and actually binge gorge on Reese's? As a matter of fact, I think a lot of the dietitians go into dietetics because they love ice cream. Is that really it? Yeah. <laughs> they want to figure out the balance, maybe. Is it trying to find find balance in their own life? Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering. They're definitely okay with goodies. Okay, that's yeah. my only question. Sorry, carry okay, on. That's good. <laughs> um, so, Karen, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, and does that mean where I grew up, or does that mean a professional background? Uh, both, if you want. Okay. Well, I'm a, I'm an Air Force brat, actually. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and was born on a um, Panama City, Florida, an Air Force base, and then uh, spent some years in my childhood in France and England and then um, different places in the U.S. and settled back in Florida um, as, you know, a prepubescent. And, uh, and then went to Texas and went to school there for um, a number. I started out as an art major in uh, Denton, Texas, and then uh, decided to go into biology and then medical technology and then landed uh, finally in school for dietetics. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I'll move that over just a little bit. So b- before I ask you the next question, I, you know, it's finals week, and I completely forgot to introduce Dr. Liz Beverly, who's here um, <clears throat> as a person off the street. Sorry about that. You're no checked problem. out, man. I know. My br- <laughs> I'm running at like 20%. <laughs> I need some coffee. Um, so thanks for joining us, sure. uh, especially at last minute. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Karen, tell us about uh, what got you interested in dietetics. I, I just love biological sciences. Um, and I wanted to stay in that kind of area, but I also wanted to be employed. Yeah, um, that's important. Yeah, so that that kind of is my journey. I always enjoyed health too, and um, it was just a yeah, it was a natural progression, I guess. And you loved ice cream. I like ice cream. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, tell us about your training. You know, what what is it? What's the training process to become a dietitian? Well. Um, it's it's four to five years. Um, you can become an RD after an undergraduate degree in um, you know nutrition and dietetics, uh, but you you have to take an exam to be registered, um, and there's a um, a national you know registration process 
and then many states now have licensure for dietitians, but they didn't used to. So we started out being registered, which is just a national recognition that we um, are comp you know have competencies in that area, uh, and then. Um, and then states start taking on licensure. So you, you might hear women or dietitians, men and women, call themselves registered dietitians. Mm -hmm. uh, and they may also be licensed, but they you know, often will call themselves registered because probably that's the first thing that they, you know, that sure. they had to make sure that they were registered before they could be licensed. Okay. Um, so, you know, this segment is, uh, we like to talk a little bit about, you know, what medical students and what physicians can learn from these you know, different health specialties. So can you tell us a little bit about what's your day-to-day -day work as a dietitian look like? You know, mm -hmm. what, what do you guys do? Well, you know, you have, you have clinical dietitians in hospitals, and I've, you know, I, I did spend some time in hospitals as a clinical dietitian. And, and I would say, you know, from the perspective of uh, how we can best help the medical profession and doctors is that think of it as the dietitian in the hospital is the advocate uh, for the nutritional status of your patient. And they've been trained in just that. So um, we'll do a nutritional assessment. And we'll, you know, really think, thinking about and looking at the medical history of the patient, whether they came to the hospital uh, malnourished or not, whether they're at risk for malnutrition, um, assess their calorie and protein needs and fluid needs based on their medical history. So we learn a lot about different disease states and how that's impacting their nutritional status and how their nutritional status impacts the progression of their uh, condition. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're very, uh, very skilled at nutritional assessments. And then we also look at their ability in the hospital to meet their needs. So if you have someone, for example, that's got infections or open areas and their calorie and protein needs are really high, but they can't swallow because they had a stroke or they're unconscious and they mm -hmm. still need the nutrition or their GI tract is messed up, um, so we're skilled in really not only assessing nutritional status, but their ability to uh, consume, uh, digest, and absorb nutrients, mm -hmm. and then make recommendations to the doctor based on our assessments. And then we also, while they're in the hospital, follow up on them and make sure they are meeting their needs. And if they're not meeting their needs, what, what can we do? Mm -hmm. So we're skilled in TPN, um, tube feedings, uh, liquid nutrition supplements, um, all the special diets. So think of it, think think of us as your expert on the nutritional um, care of your patient. Sure, and you're also a certified diabetes educator, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us about that journey. What what brought you to to work in that role? Well, I started working uh, at the Diabetes Institute like one day a week when I was in working in the hospitals, and um, then I was asked to work full time, uh, and. I decided that I wanted to be a certified diabetes educator, and that requires working with patients for a thousand hours in diabetes education before you can even sit for an exam. So you have to uh, have practicum hours, and then you have to study, and you have to sit for an exam. And uh, so I got my certification in 2012. Sure. And Dr. Beverly, you work a lot with the Diabetes Institute. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about you know what role dietitians play in the management of diabetes? It's a critical role, sure. So. Karen and I actually know each other quite well. Um, so I'm with the Diabetes Institute. Karen's with the Diabetes Institute. In fact, we don't actually don't have a lot of diabetes educators, and I think Karen would agree that we don't have enough diabetes educators in this country, um, and we need more. It's, and part of it is because it does take so many hours to become a certified diabetes educator. Um, so I think even in Athens County, we only have a, a few. I can think of about 
three or four diabetes educators in this county. Do you agree? Yeah, I never really thought about that. I don't know all the diabetes educators because a lot of them are nurses, so we don't really kind of mingle in the same I can think places. of, off the top of my head in Athens County, I can count three people. Mm-hmm. And considering the rates of diabetes where it's one in five individuals in Athens County, having so 20% having diabetes, you can see how we need a lot more diabetes educators. And it's really important to have a certified diabetes educator. So for the diabetes care team, you need to have a physician it doesn't necessarily have to be an endocrinologist or a diabetologist, but you need to have a physician who's very knowledgeable about diabetes. I would recommend an endocrinologist for type 1. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really important to have the, the dietitian considering the role that food plays with diabetes management, especially with type 1 um, and counting of carbs. And if you're you know, doing basal bolus insulin, and, and I would ask Karen these questions if you're talking mm-hmm. very particular about food and its management. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But it's so integral to have a dietitian on the care team mm-hmm. as well as a diabetes educator. And if, you, if you're lucky enough to have the dietitian also be the diabetes educator, that's two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really, really critical. And it's also you can have a nurse be a diabetes educator as well as an exercise physiologist be a diabetes educator, although that, ra- that combination is more rare. Sure. Right. Yeah, so I, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say I can't emphasize the importance enough about the utilization of both skilled dietitians and diabetes educators. As um, as a guy who practiced uh, intensive care medicine for several years, uh, as well as just general medical surgical medicine um, in the VA, um, of course, you know, dietitian working with TPN and nitrogen balance and that kind of thing, uh, vitamins, micronutrients, all that stuff, that you just don't have enough brain power as a physician to be able to manage all this. And you need someone who really devotes their life to the study of this and understands how to guide you on that. And especially in the realm of TPN, when you're dealing with uh, hyperalimentation. And what is TPN, in case someone doesn't know? Go ahead, Karen, tell us. It's called, it's total parenteral nutrition. So it's a, it's a way to get nutritional, uh, nutritional greenies in a person whose GI tract is not working at all. Gotcha. Yeah, so, um, and that should be only used if that is the case where their GI tract is not working, and then otherwise their GI tract should should be used, should yeah. be utilized. So, you know, the the one thing I I got off on that tangent on the clinical dietetics because when I worked in the hospital, I kind of really felt like the dietitians were underutilized totally. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally felt like, and this was was back in the late '90s and early 2000s. I felt like the snack lady basically, because we did these thorough nutritional assessments on a person, and we really are skilled in different, um, you know, all that area. And yet when when it wound up seeing the patient, it was, can I get you some Ensure pudding between meals? And, um, you know, what kind of snacks would you like? Um, The the doctors really didn't utilize um, the resource that they had. Well, you know, Karen, that's one of the reasons why I think we've wanted to do an allied health series because at least for me i think it's important that a medical student's prime we talk about patient-centered medical homes and all these other things that's great but if a student goes out and has a buzzword in their head but doesn't understand who the other allied health professionals are that make up this team of people that are going to look at and how to appropriately apply them right then but if we start young with, with a pre-med or a med student, they say, oh, yeah, I know something about dietitians, and oh, they can figure out all this nutritional status for me, and I don't have to do all that paperwork, and I don't have to do all that math. Mm-hmm. I just have to be able to converse with them. Mm-hmm. Why not use that as part of a, a, a additional brain power to be working for the benefit of the patient? Mm-hmm. What you didn't mention, I, I want you to talk about, is not just hyperalimentation, tube feedings. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so there's a lot of ways to feed a person. They can feed them with a normal alimentation through their mouth and through their gut if it's working. Sometimes their mouths don't work right. So then we need to have someone who understands that weird gray stuff that we pour into their stomach and how that works, right? And I mean, can you talk a little bit about that, right? Right. So there's so many different um, ways you can, uh, you know, there's so different kind of formulas. So for example, if you have someone that's on a fluid restriction, you know, there's special formulas just for them that really concentrate calories and uh, protein without getting too much fluid in them. And uh, we also really consider whether they're an aspiration risk or um, so... We, you know, we really are good at assessing that. We assess whether it's causing diarrhea, and if it is, then we go to a maybe a more digestible type of a formula. Um, so, uh, it's it, we do we do get trained very well in that area, and I think the reason doctors maybe don't utilize dietitians more is because they really don't know what our training is. Mm-hmm. They have no idea, so they think of us as the food people. The food and Nazis. I remember, the people who don't like ice cream. Not, right. And I, <laughs> Isn't that yeah, terrible? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I just remember, said it, didn't I? I remember when I worked in the hospital, we actually had to justify our existence to the CE, um, CEO. We had to explain why dietitians are in hospitals. And one of the reasons is because about three-fourths of patients that go into the hospital come in malnourished. Right. And, and then their outcomes are um, at risk. If they remain malnourished, well, you know, you go in the hospital and your NPO for tests and your NPO for surgery. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they go days and days with no feedings at all. Your, your dietitian is the advocate of that person to make sure that if they can be fed, they, sh- they are fed. Mm-hmm. Now, the, um, the other thing I do now is uh, I don't work in the, in the hospitals at all. My, now it's really about uh, uh, educating people, about their empowering people about, you know, that have diabetes how, uh, what role they have in their own care. So there's the medications and there's exercise and there's diet and they have a lot of control over a couple of those um, elements in diabetes care. So uh, there's a lot of education going on and, um, uh, and, and really looking at population health and population education and making sure programs are available and affordable and in the community where the people are uh, because a lot of times people don't show up for appointments to see diabetes educators and dietitians. Uh, do you ever do you work with patients who are who aren't necessarily who don't have a disease but don't necessarily have the best diet either? You know, like yeah. just to help yeah. make better food choices. Yes, yes. So there's a lot of people that come in that want to lose weight, or yeah. you know, or the doctors really advise them to go see a dietitian because they their food habit, their lifestyle habits are horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we do talk about just healthy lifestyles because you can't just talk about diet without talking about the fact that did you get any sleep last night or did you stay up right. all night watching television? And so, you know, healthy nutrition really is part of just being, you know, having a sense about healthy lifestyle. And so mm-hmm. sometimes I'm talking about things that have nothing to do with the food even, uh, just trying to get them to go to bed at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and get up in the morning at a decent time and get some activity during the day. So, uh, and I, and I, um, I'm kind of encouraged by the fact that I think in general population is starting to get it. They're starting to get that, um, unhealthy lifestyles or, you know, the, do- the medications don't make up for unhealthy lifestyles. I think there's, there's an increasing awareness about, um, where your food comes from, what you're eating, mm-hmm. um, uh, and in general, how it impacts your health and how you, you know, individuals need to play a role in their own self-care. Uh, so that, 
that's one of the future trends, as a matter of fact, that oh, it was mentioned in that paper, yeah. is that there is a, a general trend toward people caring where their food comes from, locally sourced food, mm -hmm. the impact on the environment, and I'm really encouraged uh, by that. Yeah, I've noticed mm -hmm. that too. You know, I've been mm -hmm. vegetarian my whole life, so it's it's mm -hmm. interesting to see the amount of people that are slowly gravitating towards that. Mm -hmm. um, I know Dr. Fredericks is going to be converted here soon. I'm an omnivore. <laughs> I'm a survivor. You're a carnivore. I'm an, no, I'm an omnivore. I have a cat that's a carnivore and a dog that's an omnivore. I am more a dog. Um, so, Karen, what are some current developments in your specialty um, that have caught your interest? Uh, the technology uh, that's come about with the the apps and websites and um, telehealth uh, are things that, you know, there's a big learning curve for me being an older person and, um, you know, when someone starts talking about all the, uh, the phone apps and mm -hmm. the, the Twitter account and then this and the that, is a, there's, a, there's a big learning curve, but young dietitians should be, you know, right in the middle of that and maybe even developing applications. Um, so I think there's some room, you know, there's really some uh, ways that uh, dietitians can become um, entrepreneurs in this area, uh, the technology and nutrition. Um, other other things that I read about, so I went on the website actually to look what they Which did. Which website? The uh, um, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics did a study on future trends. Hmm. Uh, and it was really fascinating. So the increasing in age in the population in the United States by 2030, one out of five people will be 65 and older. So when you're 65, you start on Medicare. So mm -hmm. um, that's non-sustainable healthcare costs for for the nation. So we're really they're really trying to figure out how to make us uh, stay healthy as we get older, right. and um, and that's where the diabetes prevention program has come in, and uh, the Centers for Disease Control really really focusing on getting those lifestyle change programs out there. So dietitians play a big role in. In, um, in you know in in implementing those lifestyle change programs and then teaching others because uh, community health workers are now um, more prevalent in, in the population and that is because they want lay people to do programs like this at a real cost efficient manner so we see dietitians playing a role in maybe uh, teaching those those community health workers to be lifestyle coaches and so I've been able to do that we've done DPP programs. Um, I'm a master what's, trainer. What's DPP? Sorry. Diabetes prevention program. It's okay. a it's a lifestyle change program that's a year long to help people uh, prevent from becoming diabetes as they get older. That if they're at risk, um, and then I'm also trained to train coaches. So I've oh. uh, been able to do that for the last few years here in in the area too. Um, so I see population health as really become playing more of a role mm -hmm. uh, for dietitians in in society because we're trying to find really um, cost-effective ways to keep people healthy since mm -hmm. to reduce health care costs in the future. Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, with the technology, um, have you seen MyFitnessPal at mm -hmm. all? That's I think that's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> you don't like it? Well, MyFitnessPal um, is a very powerful tool, yeah. and there's a lot of those out there, by the way, a lot of those kind of tools. The, the problem that I see with MyFitnessPal is that it can be inaccurate uh, uh, because, you know, the user is able to put food... Uh, data on yeah. on the site and so if all they really care about is the carbs in a food they may put zero for calories zero for fat and all they have in that food is the is the carb so right. uh, accuracy is not all there but it's all having, having said that yeah. um, it's helped so many people uh, mm -hmm. you know on their way to to you know weight loss and better um, lifestyles so it's great sure. yeah 
you know, one of the things that I think is really important for doctors, um, too, with, you know, taking care of their patients is really learn what the programs are around you. Yeah. And that's that's not always easy to do because they're, mm-hmm. they're sprouting up all the time. There's a lot of programs I don't even know about. But, um, for example, here in Athens, the Athens Health Department has tried to become a hub of information on different programs out there. Mm-hmm. So you can call the health department and say, you know, I got a, I got a, uh, a patient who... They just don't have access to food. You know, they need some vegetables. Do you have any kind of little gardening projects going on or any any kind of, is there food pantries that have produce? And so try calling the health department because in Athens here, they really do try to be aware of all the programs that are available. Um, a lot of doctors don't know about uh, the fact that in the, in the community there is a, a program that does diabetes self-management training. Like here mm-hmm. we have a diabetes self-management training that's free. And a lot of doctors still don't know about it. Um, and so really, really kind of trying to become aware of what's going on around you so you can refer your patients uh, to the resources that are there is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brevo, did you want to comment on the food insecurity point? Sure. Yeah. I was, yeah. So. Unpack that thing, Liz, because like I say, older doctors may not understand that term. I had to actually go back and look at it. Right. And I do think, I wouldn't, I think it's a hot topic. Yeah. So Ohio actually is in the bottom five of the U.S. in terms of food insecurity. I think we're ranked 45th in the nation, so we're not doing well as a state um, as a, comparatively. Is, is it regional within Ohio, Liz, or is it just – is it Appalachia that's drawing that down, or is so it Appalachia statewide? Appalachia is it's, – it's throughout the state. So the cities – there are certain parts of the cities, um, and Appalachia – as a whole. So there are certain counties, Athens County, Athens County is the poorest county in the state. Mm-hmm. You have Meigs County bringing that down, Benton County bringing that down. Um, but as a whole, um, one in six individuals in the state of Ohio are food insecure, which means they don't really know where their next meal is coming from. That's that's what food insecurity is referring to. Yeah, but is that correlated with, say, having an EBT card? It, do, is that the people who don't have any entitlement support or people who have some but just don't know how to use it or run out of benefits by the end of the month? How does that work? So I would say that statistic is not necessarily associated with whether or not they have benefits. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can't – so some will have benefits hmm. and some not do not have benefits. Okay, so that statistic – is independent of whether or not they have benefits. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. But so some definitely still have benefits, but they're still food insecure, and some do not have benefits and are food insecure. Hmm. When okay. I when I have talked to patients um, that have, for example, some food assistance money, um, I mean, many of them tell me that it just it's very very little, mm-hmm. very very little. So it may help them for the first week or two, or one one trip to the grocery store for the month, but that's about it. So. Just because they get food assistance doesn't yeah. mean it covers their needs in any way. Right. It's that's, really just a supplement. That's a really, really good point. Mm-hmm. One in four children, so 25% of children in the state of Ohio are food insecure, which if you think about it, if it's one in six individuals, these individuals generally have multiple children at home. So that's why food insecurity is so much higher for children in yeah. the state of Ohio. <clears throat> and then I can explain a little bit more to answer your question as to why it's a complicated issue and why individuals might not be growing food. Yeah, stay tuned for uh, more with Karen Bailey. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the Media and Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications, 
Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Thank you.